This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. This week, we have another episode of America Looks Abroad, hosted by foreign correspondent Robert Arden. It first aired on September 12, 1941. This version of America Looks Abroad is a slightly different one than the NBC radio show that ran from 1939 to 1940. This version of the show was a local one, airing over KFWB Radio in Los Angeles. In 1941 and 1942, under various names and with various sponsors. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help us to continue to produce the podcast, and thanks to those of you who have already donated. And thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Good evening. While the United States Navy patrolled the vast expanse of the Atlantic Ocean under strict orders by the Commander-in-Chief and ready to shoot at any Nazi or fascist war vessel caught in American defense waters, President Roosevelt's stern warning to the Axis powers overshadowed by far all other developments today. One of the most important immediate effects of President Roosevelt's history-making speech of last night was the fact that the entire world, by commenting on the President's stand, was forced to take sides, openly, one way or another. Of course, in a few rare cases, the fence-sitting continued, but it was clearly evident that the slightest change in conditions, such as an unmistakable gain by either side, would result in open adherence. In other words, those fence-sitters are ready to jump on the bandwagon of the winner. In Japan, the Japan Times and Advertiser, the official organ of the Foreign Office, disputed President Roosevelt's claim that Germany's submarine warfare constituted piracy. I quote, The sinking of ships by submarines is certainly not privacy, and the Germans have not made any profit out of submarine warfare. It has been an expensive business in lives and investments, unquote. Now, this is a very fine example of political fence-sitting. While it is being disputed, obviously in deference to Nazi Germany, that the Nazi submarine warfare constitutes piracy, not one word is being said that could be interpreted in any way as criticism of President Roosevelt's determination to keep American defense waters open to all shipping. And that indicates that Japan, at the right time, will have a chance to use the same argument. Now, if and when Nazi Germany should win a decisive victory on the Eastern Front, or, for instance, Japan and many others, will then assume that Hitler is going to continue on his way to conquer the world, then they'll join the Nazi-dominated Axis once again. They'll say to Berlin, number one, we defended you against the accusation of being pirates. And then, number two, to Washington, they'll say, you proclaimed the right to keep your defense waters open. 
And so we claim the right to keep our defense waters closed to all shipping going, for instance, to Soviet Russia. Of course, if Hitler fails, then the comparatively anemic effort to defend Nazi Germany's total submarine warfare will soon be forgotten, together with all other agreements that tie Japan to the totalitarian axis. Italy's views were expressed by Virginia Gaida, Premier Mussolini's journalistic spokesman, who declared in the Giornale d'Italia today that Axis warships would shoot first if confronted by aggressive American naval action. He said, and I quote, German and Italian warships, when unable to escape from the announced aggressive action of American warships, will be compelled to attack first in legitimate defense. Now that, of course, is only a mild rehash of a Berlin statement quite transparent as an attempt to hide obvious fear behind a mask of non-existing courage. The Italian people, least of all those who have been maneuvered into an Axis alliance, desire a conflict with the United States. The Italian Navy, least of all combatants, has shown any particular fighting strength that would make Gaida's words ring true or rot with danger. What Gaida really should have said is the logical thing, namely that all the Axis war vessels have to do in the future is to stay out of American waters. The United States Navy is certainly not going to go out of its way to look for Axis ships elsewhere, but the presence of Axis men of war is definitely not wanted in American defense waters. And as for the boast that Axis ships will be compelled to shoot first, well, that has been done all along. As a matter of fact, that is the only reason for President Roosevelt's determination to put an end to these first shootings by Axis war uh, vessels. Of course, defenseless merchant vessels, four of them to date, have been sunk by the Nazi marauders. But when it comes to attacking the American Navy, well, I feel quite confident that the scene will change considerably. As a matter of fact, I believe that both the Nazi and fascist navies will live up to their glorious naval traditions. They will run like heck, and then, when cornered, scuttle their ships. And the United States Navy will probably not need to waste much ammunition. South and Central American papers gave their full and, and uh, enthusiastic support to the President's declaration. Great Britain, of course, was delighted with the President's address. And pending a formal expression of British satisfaction, which is expected from Prime Minister Winston Churchill, newspapers and radio played up the American president's address. Virtually the entire British press agreed with this view and stressed particularly the order for protection of convoys. In general, Britain's enthusiastic reaction to the president's historic pronouncement was summed up by a declaration by Lord Halifax that every Briton has been heartened. And that brings us now to the reaction of official Nazi Germany. There was little doubt as to what that reaction would be. But it is very interesting to note now that Nazi Germany's propaganda machine apparently was ready for the president's speech several days ago. And that, in my opinion, underlines more effectively than anything else the full truth of President Roosevelt's anticipation. The danger President Roosevelt sees in Nazism and its uh, ruthless aggression on the rest of the world has become much more real. Berlin announced today that Nazi submarines had been attacking a 40-ship convoy for several days in the North Atlantic, and that 22 ships already have been sunk. 
And then the Nazi communique adds, the attack is continuing. Of course, so far we have had no confirmation from London of this Nazi report. And perhaps it is not more than a Nazi propaganda invention. But whether it is or not, the intent is perfectly clear. Nazi propagandists are obviously attempting to minimize the danger to Nazi Germany, which lies in America's warning that all Axis war vessels caught in American defense waters would be shot at first. I have very often tried to point out that the one thing every European, particularly the Central European, in Germany, Austria, and surrounding countries, is in deadly fear of is the power of the United States. That is something very much akin to the mentality, let's say, of a prize fighter. He acquires that kind of uh, thinking uh, after he has beaten by a powerful opponent. So the next time and every time he goes into the ring to face the same opponent, subconsciously he will feel the same sting of the same knockout blow that finished him the last time they met. Perhaps the new generation of Nazis that grew up under complete Hitler domination, that may perhaps be an exception. But even there, I would say that if not actually fear, then at least a certain amount of respect is in evidence. And so, in order to offset that dangerous effect of an American declaration, which is just short of a declaration of war, the Nazi propaganda ministry has obviously made an attempt to minimize the inherent threat of President Roosevelt's warning by announcing this startling naval success. Now, if the battle, or rather that undersea attack, has actually been going on for four days, the Nazis could have very well announced it long before today. But, of course, they did not quite know what President Roosevelt was going to say, and they didn't want to add fuel to his fiery words. Once Mr. Roosevelt made his stand clear in unmistakable words, they had nothing to lose and then announced a naval attack just like saying to their people, see, the President of the United States only talks, but we, the Nazis, we act, and nothing, not even the American Navy, will stop us. At the same time, the Berlin High Command admitted what was termed a spectacular battle in the English Channel. In this battle, British speedboats were said to have attacked a large Nazi convoy. The attack, however, according to Berlin, was repulsed, and all ships of the convoy reached their destination undamaged. Now, this is as fine an example of the workings of Nazi propaganda as we have had in a long time. You see, the Nazi power is being propagandized both offensively in the successful sinking of 22 ships in a four-day attack, and defensively, in the repulsion of a British sea attack, while the whole Nazi convoy reaches safety, its, uh, the safety of its destination. Now, the unexpected appearance of both reports at the same time, that is conclusive proof of their propagandistic aims. Probably neither will be confirmed by the British Admiralty, but there they are. What went far beyond propaganda, however, and is actually tantamount to a confirmation of every word President Roosevelt said in regard to the Nazis and their peculiar style of fighting to conquer the world, is the fact that the State Department in Washington today announced that another American-owned vessel, the SS Montana, a sister ship of the ill-fated SS Sessa, was sunk just 15 minutes before President Roosevelt went on the air yesterday. The Montana sailed on August the 29th with a cargo of lumber for the Iceland government from Wilmington, North Carolina. 
And strange as it may seem, American aircraft actually observed the ship being torpedoed in the North Atlantic waters. So there can be no doubt as to the veracity of the statement. It is perhaps the most flagrant violation of American interests, and since it is the second unwarranted attack upon a ship flying the flag of our sister republic of Panama, an attack which violates all international traditions and conventions, it must be pointed out that it convicts the Nazi regime on all counts enumerated by President Roosevelt. And no longer, quite obviously, can America stand by idly and see her own and her sister republic's ships menaced by Axis marauders. The Nazis do not recognize chivalry and kindness because their moral and political codes do not contain any such human emotions. And thus the Nazis are apt to mistake chivalry for weakness and kindness for cowardice. Once a nation is branded as weak and cowardly by the Nazis, the time for attack is near. And, as all strategists will agree, the best defense against an impending attack is to strike first. The whole Nazi psychology, which I have tried so frequently to point out, was very blatantly exposed by Berlin today. It seems that some of the Nazi spokesmen lost their temper and perhaps unwittingly gave away the whole secret of their policy. According to direct advices from Berlin, military spokesmen there shouted today, we, and not Roosevelt, will decide what will happen. Now that is the whole story which President Roosevelt in one of his recent broadcasts and many of his supporters tried to bring home to the American people. Nobody decides the question of war and peace. That is entirely up to the Nazis. And it is an excellent point to make when one goes over the past record of the Nazi regime. Hitler never declared war on anyone. If his attack was not outright aggression, unwarranted and unprovoked, then it was usually cloaked in flimsy garments of pretense, such as protection of the land and its people, or interests of the Third Reich. The Nazis admit now in unmistakable form that nobody is going to decide whether the United States will have war or peace. That is entirely up to the Nazis because it is an essential prerequisite for their nefarious policies inasmuch as it spreads fear and uncertainty. No government is secure if it does not know whether it will continue in peace or whether it will have to arm its people for a ruthless warfare with the Nazis. And at the same time, Hitler's fifth columnist, in one form or another, feed the distrust, disunity, and disloyalty, and thereby provide basis for Hitler's future actions. President Roosevelt, by his courageous stand, has taken the initiative away from the Nazis. The freely elected leader of the American people is not going to stand by and let the Nazi regime decide the future of the American people. America has, is, and always will be powerful enough to decide her own future and her own destiny. And when it comes to a choice between American traditions and Nazi inventions, the decision is rather simple. America, its government, and its people do not want any part of, nor any traffic with, Hitlerism. Au revoir.